Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts Fortnightly Podcast. On the show this week, as governments worldwide continue in their quest to make the cost of living unaffordable to millions, we'll take a look at the impact of inflation on pension schemes' discretionary increases. Predictions are that these have become some £10 billion more expensive than they were just a couple of months ago, so we will ask who can afford them and of those who would choose to award them. Also on the show this week, the Marvel Cinematic Universe managed to keep the audience engaged across three phases, but we've come to the end of phase one of the McLeod Cinematic Universe, and we have to ask, will anybody be flocking to the theatres for phase two? Police and firefighters might not. They've both been unhappy with the remedy for various reasons. But late last month, the government announced it would push ahead with the McLeod reforms in their two schemes. We'll ask our experts whether any hiccups are expected as we move to the next stage. And then finally, it might feel a little bit like Groundhog Day, but the pensions regulator has been insisting that dashboards really are imminent. And it's not at all happy that so few schemes are acting with what it considers to be inappropriate urgency, or rather a lack of appropriate urgency. Are dashboards really imminent this time? And is the regulator right to be concerned? We will find out. I'm Benjamin Mercer, senior reporter at Pensions Experts, and I'm joined today by Tim Middleton, Director of Policy and External Affairs at the Pensions Management Institute, and by Aon partner Linda Whitney, and I thank you both very much for joining me. We'll begin with uh, discretionary increases. Whether or not you're allowed to award them depends, of course, on your scheme rules, but whether you can afford to award them is another matter. Uh, Back in May, Aon estimated the cost of these increases, which could help members tackle some of the cost of living crisis, would be around £8 billion. But since then, uh, we've asked Linda Whitney herself a couple of weeks ago to give us an updated estimate, and she told us that it could have risen as far as £18 billion. And since it is your estimate, uh, Linda, I'm going to put you on the spot and you can begin with this one. Is that estimate still the same? And what is the reason for the, the remarkable increase? So the increase is all around what do we expect the inflation to be in the key reference month of September. So most schemes typically set their pension increases for next March or April time based on inflation this September, maybe CPI, maybe RPI, depending on their scheme rules. Um, But that leap really is just recognising that we don't expect inflation to have fallen back by that sort of September date. Obviously, we we mentioned in in that little introduction that a lot of this depends on on scheme rules as to whether you you can afford uh, sorry whether you're allowed to award them. Um, but on the on the question of whether schemes can actually afford to award them, what considerations are in play um, here when schemes are weighing up if they are allowed to award these things, whether or not they they are going to do that? What what considerations do they have to take account of? I think it depends whether you're thinking from a a trustee or an employer perspective uh, to some extent. But I think both sides are recognising that there really is a genuine risk of hardship um, that members may suffer and that members may believe that these DB pensions are fully protected with inflation uh, when actually most of them typically do have caps and a lot of those caps are at 5%. But having said that, this is a benefit improvement. It's typically not pre-funded for, so there isn't money sitting there ready for it. And sponsors might be thinking about fairness, so fairness with their current workforce, who are probably on much lower pensions, and what salary increases they're going to be giving to them. Then from a sort of more technical scheme perspective, actually where are schemes trying to get to with their long-term targets? And if they are going to increase their liabilities by paying these discretionary increases, 
how long does that increase the time until they can reach those targets, thus actually reducing the security for those same members. So, you know, it's a really tricky balancing act to think about um, the short term benefit of actually protecting members against inflation versus that longer term security risk uh, of needing to rely on the markets for longer. I think there was something online um, recently where um, you'd uh, given a, a breakdown of how quickly the real term increase of pension breaks down during a period of higher than recent inflation. Uh, perhaps you could just remind us of um, what kind of uh, effect that would have. Yeah, absolutely. So this is thinking about the half-life. How quickly does it take for the real value of a pension to halve? Um, so when inflation, as it has been over the last few years, has been running at more like two and a half percent a year, then that half-life is 28 years if you've got no increases in the structure. In contrast, as inflation increases, that gap between something that's fixed and inflation does change. So with inflation at 5%, um, those nearly increasing pensions will halve in value, in real value, in 14 years. And at 7.5% would halve in value in nine years. So at 2.5, you're talking about something that is broadly equivalent to somebody's life expectancy. Whereas by the time you're at seven and a half, you know, it's dropped all the way down to that, that nine year. Mm. To be fair, not that we expect it to average seven and a half for the next nine years. Tim, if I, if I can bring you in at yeah. this point, um, as mentioned, a lot of this does depend on, on whether schemes have it within their rules that they are allowed to award these in the first place. I mean, is, it, is it a common occurrence that schemes have rules that allow them to award discretionary increases? So even not accounting for the cost, how many would be able to do this if they so wish to do? Well, yes, it's worth remembering that uh, we haven't had in the, the overall scheme of things, uh, mandatory increases to pensions in payment is relatively recent. So if you go back to um, before the 90s, any increases to pensions in payment weren't mandatory uh, and would be dependent either what was in the scheme rules or whatever scope there was for trustees to make discretionary increases. So whilst most schemes do have uh, the capacity to make um, di discretionary increases. There are the constraints that Linda's already described. Uh, and another issue that we need to bear in mind, of course, is the uh, rise of pension increase exchanges, whereby some pensioners will have formally forgone uh, any formal entitlement to future discretionary increases as a result of um, a, a single lump sum payment. So there are some who, regardless of whatever the scheme might be in a position to do, will not under any circumstances be eligible for an increase. And in terms of the number of members who may have, who may have foregone uh, the, the ability for an increase, is, is there a figure you can put on that? Is that a widespread problem or is, that a, or is that a very specific problem to a certain cohort of members? It's very difficult to say. I've not seen any formal aggregated um, estimates as to uh, how many members are affected in this way. I don't know if uh, you've seen anything, Linda. No, I think you know, pension increase exchange and, and other forms of option where people take, for example, transfers out of DB into DC. And remember, in DC world, people are typically drawing down their benefits, or if they do buy annuity, they buy an annuity with no increases. So, you know, you are looking uh, there at a significant proportion of, of people in a variety of these circumstances who, who will not then be eligible for uh, discretionary pension increases. So the discretionary increases point is definitely um, a defined benefit 
thing in particular. And just one final question on this topic then, Linda. Of course, we, the, the, the estimated cost has risen quite dramatically in the space of a couple of months. Is this likely to change dramatically again? And if it is, will it get better or will it get worse? Well, that's all about predicting future inflation. But um, we're now already sort of three quarters of the way through the year that will count towards that September inflation. So we would have to have some really sharp movements from now to make a radical change in that figure. Um, I think it still could go you know, up or down, um, but I don't think it will move perhaps as dramatically as it has in, in the last couple of months. Fair enough, in which case we will wait and see. But uh, we'll move on for the uh, purposes of this episode to our next topic, which is, of course, uh, McLeod. I've lost count of the number of consultations we've covered looking at the details of the McLeod Remedies implementation. It seems every government department has had a go at it. And if the first round wasn't enough, we have a second round of consultations to look forward to. Phase one concern changes to regulations. Phase two will look specifically at the choice members will be given as to the benefits they receive with respect to the remedy period. And Tim, I will begin with you uh, on this one as we hopefully uh, draw to the end of this phase. Um, has it been as smooth a voyage as the government could have hoped it would most, be the first phase of the McLeod remedy? Most emphatically not. And I think it's, it's important that we have um, a good overall view of just how long this issue has been going on. This goes all the way back to 2012 and the coalition government's decisions about how it wanted to contain the cost of uh, public sector pension provision uh, and the shift from final salary to care scheme design within the public sector. Within that, there were these original provisions for uh, special easements for older members uh, who were allowed to keep their final salary accrual. Uh, this was challenged initially by the judges members of the judges pension scheme and subsequently by firefighters and police and um, the, you know the case was successful it was found that there was age discrimination going on uh, and um, so uh, we've had this uh, proposed remedy without going into too much detail because this is very long and very complicated we're now at a point where essentially we have this uh, deferred choice underpin which is the government's preferred, preferred option for addressing age discrimination, which is theoretically everybody who was affected by this. There is a particular cohort within all these different public sector schemes who have been effectively reinstated in the original pension schemes that they were in uh, and that they have simultaneous accrual. And what they will be looking at is this choice of will they be better off uh, under the newest arrangements or the old arrangements. So scheme administrators will have to maintain records effectively, assuming that they're members of um, both types of pension scheme at the same time. So they will be making records of people within um, the newer schemes, the care schemes that have been introduced, as well as the older final salary schemes. I believe that uh, the overall cohort within the public sector of people caught in this way is something in the order of three million people. But um, it's going to be, from an administrative perspective, horrendously complicated to keep track of. There is also this very specific issue uh, that we've noted within the NHS scheme, whereby you'll recall from a couple of years ago, uh, there was this issue of highly paid consultants within the NHS being called by the tapered annual allowance. And um, so, there's this issue about 
if they were to accrue benefits within a different scheme design, would this use as much of their annual allowance as a accrual in a final salary scheme would? So there's a lot of retrospective calculation as to how much tax would be owed or indeed should be refunded. And indeed, if this could just be overlooked over the period of time that's um, elapsed. So that in itself is a horrendously complicated problem. On top of that, there had been suggestions that the proposed remedy that the government has gone down, um, the um, deferred, deferred choice underpin, is itself potentially discriminatory. Now, I can't really comment on that. That's uh, a legal issue. Um, that's a bit beyond my pay grade. But what I think the overall picture that we need to take away from this is that this is an horrendously complicated issue that's gone on for a very long time. It's by no means over. Uh, we can expect this to continue for years, I would realistically surmise. And um, trying to fix a, a problem like this is not going to be a quick, easy fix. So expect this one to rumble on and on. Well, that uh, is encouraging from my perspective, because that means at least I'll be in a job for a much longer time to come. But um, so mindful of, of Pensions Minister Ockman's sort of complaints about the industry bringing him problems more than, than solutions. Of course, we've, we've gone through a, a yeah. litany and the list of the problems there. Is there was or so I suppose there's a two part question, really. Was there a simpler and better way of doing this? Um, and now that that way has not been taken, is there a simple, better way forward from the point we're at now? And I appreciate that's a very broad question, but I thought I'd throw it at you anyway. Well, I think, first of all, if I just address the kind of complaints that uh, the pensions minister has made about the industry and rather respectfully point out that the problems that he's moaning um, that have been created here are arising from the law and not the industry. So if there are problems, we didn't create them. It's about complying with, uh, with the law as it exists. I think realistically what's happened is that they've tried to rush through or within the overall scheme of things. They've tried to oversimplify the issue. What would normally have happened in the private sector with something like this is that there would have been a cutoff point whereby you would have kept members up to a certain point in one scheme and put new members into a replacement scheme. Uh, what they've done is they've tried to transfer unilaterally um, a whole cohort of members from one scheme into another and done so in a way which hasn't properly taken due regard of age discrimination legislation. So um, I think probably if they'd had a, a bit more preparatory thought about the legal implications of what they were doing, they wouldn't have got into anything like the sort of trouble that they have. Fair enough. It's a very good way of, uh, of getting out of a mess is to not get into that mess in the first well, place. Um, um, quickly moving forward, one more question, if I may. Obviously, we are looking forward now to the second stage, as you mentioned, with the deferred choice underpin, or I think in the judge's case, they have the immediate choice, do they not? Yeah. There have been complaints and legal challenges against phase one. Can we expect any equivalent complaints in phase two, or will that be relatively or at least comparatively smooth? I wouldn't be at all surprised if there were further legal challenges um, in the pipeline. Then again, it's another thing for journalists to look forward to, if not members. But uh, excellent. In that case, I think we'll move on to the final topic of the day, which is, of course, dashboards. They're nearly here again. Uh, but the pensions regulator is concerned that schemes might not be quite as seized of their imminence as they should be. Uh, data released in advance from the 
pensions regulators 2021 surveys, which I think will be published in the coming weeks, showed that 51% of defined contribution schemes and 33% of defined benefit schemes hold some member records non-electronically, but just 4% of DC schemes and 9% of DB funds have begun to digitize the information they hold in preparation for pensions dashboards. And the regulator is warned it will take a dim view of schemes that fail to meet their obligation as far as dashboards go. But Given those figures, how realistic is it to expect everyone will be ready on time? And it's a sizable task anyway. Linda, I'll come uh, to you first, if I may. Is the industry playing catch up with dashboards, given how imminent we have now been told that they are? I think the industry is working hard on dashboards and, and has been for some time. I think the difficulty here is that it is a very different structure to pretty much all other um, financial services, open banking, for example, that have been done. And therefore, um, actually, the thought process of who is going to undertake those that, that work and where effectively where's the pipe work going to sit that has to do the giant game of guess who to figure out actually uh, what pension somebody has uh, because that's the big difference here with dashboard dashboard is asking everybody have you got this person rather than the other forms of, of sort of open financial services where the person is pointing at a specific organization saying i have something with them please, can they pass the data across? So in that respect, it really is quite different. I think in terms of is the industry catching up? Yes, absolutely. But it's very difficult to um, sign contracts and make things firm when actually we are still aiming at a moving target. So the, all of the detail of dashboards is not yet fixed. There are still plenty of detailed questions of, well, what is going to be included in the estimated retirement income that we need to provide, etc. So there's there's still quite a lot of, of areas of uncertainty. Sure thing. Tim, do you want to come in here? Um, I think that the last time I heard the government said that, well, of course, notwithstanding all the work that Linda points out still has to be done, eventually schemes will have, was it 90 days notice before the, the go live date? But of course, we don't know when the 90 days notice point will begin. So what, I mean, is it possible to quantify or at least to sort of set out the extent of the work that schemes still have to do to get ready for that that time window? Well, I think it's worth noting that uh, we have a staging programme where larger schemes will have to comply first. And a lot of the problems about, uh, for example, data which isn't held in non-digital format, uh, that's not something that's going to affect the larger master trusts, for example. But um, there will be some older DB schemes which are going to have uh, a lot of trouble. And this does suggest that there's going to be uh, a lot of work for data management consultants to make sure that uh, schemes do have their data sorted out in time for when they stage and if we can think back a decade to the period just before automatic enrollment there was a lot of discussion about um, um, the capacity crunch within the advisory sector about uh, advisors who were in a position to advise employers um, about um, making sure that they were compliant by their staging date there is at least in theory scope for something comparable to be happening here in that um, a lot of um, schemes dealing with uh, our employers, scheme sponsors, dealing with legacy arrangements um, and um, what kind of work they need to do to make sure that they're properly compliant. It's, it's not going to be an easy process, certainly. We are going to have to be, as an industry, continue to work very hard. 
Uh, Linda has pointed out some very serious issues that um, the industry has to address uh, in terms of what kind of data it needs to make available and what the specific format that that data has to be presented in. So there is certainly, in theory, at least plenty of scope for issues to arise. The way I think about it is we've got the period um, up until the staging date to build the pipe work and fill those pipes with, with the data, the water. But what we're going to have is that 90-day notice that they're going to turn the tap on and actually allow members access to it. What we don't know is what the behaviour of the general public will be at that point. And I think the industry concern about that uh, 90-day notice and that dashboard availability point is actually how big bang will it be? Because what we really don't want to happen is to have the um, websites overwhelmed by the number of people trying to log on or the administrators overwhelmed with the number of queries that it generates um, with people saying, right, I've looked at that, but it, I, I, what I really want to know is, well, what happened if I retire at a different age? Or what happens if I retire um, at, with a different shape of benefit? What are my options? What are my choices? And so I think there's a real concern that when the dashboard tap is turned on, what is the workload that that generates and how quickly and how much of a single peak will that be? Because what we don't want is all of the uh, pension schemes in the countries, you know, call centres and, and administrators overwhelmed by the questions that Dashboard doesn't answer. So just one more on this uh, for, for you, Tim, if, if I may. Yeah. Obviously, so we, we are talking now in terms of the big bang for the dashboards, yeah. as Linda has mentioned. Does this defeat or at least does it does it contradict the whole idea of the staging approach to connectivity with dashboards? Would it, would it not have potentially made more sense to have a gradual, equivalently phased approach to dashboards coming online as as we had with dashboards, oh, sorry, with schemes connecting to dashboards. Um, is the Big Bang the proper metaphor and is it is it the right or indeed the only approach that they could have taken? Well, we do have this staging process whereby um, not all schemes have to comply uh, at the same time. Uh, and there have been some additional easements for certain types of pension scheme under very specific circumstances. So what I think the, what we're trying to do is get a, a, an approach which will serve the majority of people quickly as possible. So we need to be realistic about what uh, is going to be achieved by uh, introducing the dashboard. Certainly, if um, the general public has been told to believe that they're going to get something that is absolutely thoroughly comprehensive about all the benefits they've ever accrued immediately, uh, I think there needs to be a degree of expectation management there. Sure thing. That um, I think will bring us probably to the close of the principal part of our programme. But I think, Linda, you had a, a dashboards related always a pensions angle for our always a pensions angle segment. So this seems like a, an appropriate segue. Yes, absolutely. So I think when thinking about dashboards and this giant game of guess who that's going to go on, do think carefully about what you choose to put in your matching criteria. And remember that for every person with the surname Smith, there are probably 20 with the same date of birth. Oh, I'm looking forward to covering this when it goes live. I can just foresee, foresee the problems, which, uh, yes, good for good for journalists, bad for members. We'll see what happens, though. Fingers crossed. That uh, that does bring us to the close of the programme, however. Thank you both very much to Linda and to Tim for joining us. Uh, thank you to you for listening uh, to us. Uh, we'll be back, as ever, in two weeks' time, and we hope we will see you then. 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. 